Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Uh Uh-oh. Is this going to be another crazy experiment that crosses a line man was not meant to cross? Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamla Summers from the University of Houston. And I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. And on today's episode, we have Paul Bloom, developmental psychologist at Yale, your old advisor. And a superhero, Paul Bloom. Yes, my old advisor and, and somebody who, well, I'm sure we'll kiss his ass later. <laughs> he is the nicest guy in nice. academia. I bet you people I, – well, I know people who disagree with him vehemently. Like, even they can't be like, well, like, I don't – I mean, Paul's a great guy, but, like, his, his <laughs> ideas are completely wrong. Like, he's such a nice guy. He seems legitimately a great guy. So if he's, if he's not, then he's a psychopath. <laughs> then he's, like, super duper. <laughs> Which would explain the empathy piece that we're going to spend a lot of the time talking with him about. Uh, maybe too much. Actually, we're not going to pretend that we already haven't <laughs> interviewed him. Right? That's right. This is we're, we're doing this a bit out of order. Um, yeah. We already have talked to Paul, and that yeah. has been been taped. And now we're actually doing the intro and talking about something entirely different. So, in our entirely next segment, different. we'll bring Paul on. We got an email from a graduate student on our episode on slurs and offensiveness. Slurs and offensiveness. Yeah, and we've been sort of. Uh, we wanted to pay a lot of attention to this email because it actually challenges us. It takes us to task. The only other time that somebody has really ripped into us was to yell at us, maybe for similar reasons, about prison rape jokes and the episode nine. That's right. Uh, That's right. Yeah. And but they know. just stopped listening. Whereas, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> right. which right. I don't get the sense. And her, her name is uh, Sarah Beth. She's a graduate student at the University of Miami, and and she I, took a, she took a she took the time to write us a very sort of detailed and and might I say respectful letter yeah uh, absolutely email although it, you know she she didn't hold she didn't pull any punches well so let me just read the opening of it she says I'm a graduate student and philosopher um, and a loyal listener of the podcast wait your thing is in the way I can't read this uh, I love <laughs> yeah. Blame yep. me for the for the layout of your screen. <laughs> blame your, I blame your video screen. Uh, I love the show. <laughs> You're a hot mess. You can't even. How do you help Liza with her homework? <laughs> We're gonna start this again. <laughs> This is going to take two hours. This is going to be like Tamler reads an email, episode 25. 
uh, let's just say Dave had a disagreement with me about whether we should be reading this whole thing verbatim or not, and I was on the side of reading it <laughs> verbatim. And I think Dave is getting so far vindicated since I haven't gotten to the, through the first sentence. <laughs> the email, and you fucked up the first sentence up. <laughs> fucked it up. Because, no, because his Skype picture is in the way of the top corner of the thing. So, geez. all right. I'm a graduate student in philosophy and a loyal listener of the podcast. I love the show. Every episode is accessible and interesting. I got to read the positive stuff first because that's you know it, it ends. I find the friendly and funny dynamic you two share a wonderful way to investigate top. Picks in philosophy and cognitive science. She recommends the podcast to students. Uh, even though I often disagree with your perspectives and find myself yelling at my iPod. See, now that's I like that. I that's like a- that people are yelling at their iPod um, when they disagree with us. She says, I hope it's not unwelcome for me to share some constructive criticism on your most recent episode regarding slurs and offense. There were two aspects of the discussion on the use of slurs that I found sorely missing from your conversation. And here's where it starts. All right. You ready, Dave? I'm ready. Because you have thinner skin than I am. So this might hurt hurt you more. (laughs) I do have thinner skin. But I got to say, when she said there were two aspects of the discussion, I was like, oh, phew. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there could be so many more. You both, to varying degrees, outlined what you believe to be relevant for if and when an, an instance of a slur being used is offensive. But neither of you, I think she's referring to my my now celebrated uh, theory of offensiveness. That's right, your formalism. <laughs> Dehumanizing formalism. <laughs> But neither of you acknowledge that your own perspective might actually block you from being able to access all relevant aspects of this matter. Individuals who belong to marginalized groups are in a much better position to explain what potential damage results from the use of certain words that have been historically used to denigrate features of their identity. Terms such as nigger, kike, bitch, retard... Pansy, I think she. It says palsy, but I believe she said uh, pansy. Lard ass, pussy, faggot, and the like single out an innate feature of a person's identity and categorize it as a less than. I wish you had brought attention to the academic lit- literature that addresses these issues, particularly standpoint epistemology and critical theory. All right, yeah, can, okay, I jump, so, can I jump in at that point? Yes. Why didn't you bring in standpoint epistemology? Here's where I have to say two things. One, I have no idea what standpoint epistemology was until she wrote this. I think the point. And still, oh, so but you've since thoroughly researched it (laughs) and read uh, a lot of major essays and articles on the topic. I think that I I think that I thought about it for for a few seconds. That's more than I've done. I considered. I briefly considered reading the literature on standpoint epistemology, but hopefully, that hopefully her point stands without having to read this literature. And you know, the point is simple: we can't possibly have uh, the perspective of these super marginalized groups who have been the victims of slurs and offensiveness. And the broader point, though, is that we can never honestly take the perspective of any other human being when it comes to any of this stuff right i mean right i do not know what it's like to be a black man and be called the n-word now i do 
I'll offer a minor defense here, which is that isn't this what I was taking you to task for when we were talking about in, in the Damani episode about or or maybe in a later episode when we were talking about the use of the N word and your theory that if we used it enough, it would cease to have its power. Well, <laughs> it wasn't that, my theory. It was it was Lenny Bruce's. Yeah, uh, but you were, you, know, theory. you were co-signing it. You were endorsing it wholeheartedly. I, I actually wasn't. I was raising it as a question in the Damani episode. I was yeah. raising it as a possibility. And then I, I'll tell you where I did maybe endorse it more might have been in the use of the word the c word right right so which i I would never say so what i kept yelling to tamler in a very coherent fashion was that that i I don't think that as um that you'd have to be a black man and know what it's like to be sort of yelled that word if and maybe i think we'd realize that that it doesn't take its the power of it away when a white person says the word i think i made that point but well, yeah, I mean, and I and I agree with it. I don't think that addresses the the Lenny Bruce point, though. The point is, is that it will feel differently as a black person if it's just used over and over again and over and over again and doesn't retain this holy power. That's right. Which the, well, my my point was a conjunction of these two points, which is that it won't lose power because we don't know what it's like to hear it every time that a white person says it. A black person might actually get increasingly angry. Like that's so. I'm trying to. I'm all, I'm only pointing that out to say that that was kind of my point about the Lenny Bruce thing, which was my appeal to take the perspective of what it, what it must be like as a black man to have that. And and you know this is one reason we played the the Louis C.K. thing as well, which is that's a great. It's a great example of, of a bunch of comedians asking the gay comedian, you know, what do, what do you think, right? What do you and, it, and I think that Sarah is absolutely right that we don't know what it's like. That's why we have to talk and engage in dialogue. Unfortunately, you and I are not the best, <laughs> the best but, two people to provide that perspective. But you know, I, but I we, I mean, there's nothing we can do. We can't turn ourselves into members of these marginalized groups. You, you can choose to embrace your Jewish identity sometimes and reject it. I, I, yeah, no, believe me, I'm forced to embrace it uh, after yeah. your repeated <laughs> anti-Semitic attacks. And I have to say, Kike, Heeb... They don't do anything to you? They don't, they don't, they seem like words from the, from another era. Or like from the 50s. Like you're saying yeah. when you like new, newer Jewish insults. <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> you do. I mean, I know you're constantly in search for them. Well, so. as a Hispanic man myself, you know, I've been marginalized plenty of times. No, yeah, actually, what's the... You know, no, there's no there's no good, you know... I mean, right? wetbacks. The problem is wetbacks is usually just used to refer to Mexicans, which mm. I, you know, I'm not Mexican, but I grew up in Southern California, so if a white person... But, you know, you, to white people, Mexican, you're all kind we're of all Mexican. all the same, right? So I was Mexican yeah. when it was a white person yeah. talking about Hispanic. And, uh... And but I, I have to admit that because I have fair skin, I don't. I, I've never really felt marginalized or, or. But more, more, more importantly, I think that I've tried at least to talk to people um, a lot about these words and get their perspective. But that that doesn't matter, right? Because it may just not have come across in the episode. Yeah, I mean, and that's our fault if it didn't. Uh, All right, so I think this is interesting. She says, related to the matter of how a privileged social position might blind us from the harm of certain practices and words is the fact that you will always be able to find women who are totally comfortable with the word cunt, homosexuals who are fine with their straight friends saying faggot, and black people who couldn't care less about the N-word. We cannot take the fact that some individuals who belong to historically marginalized groups don't mind these practices or, or words to mean that all other individuals should feel the same. No individual is a spokesperson for his or her gender, race, orientation, 
etc. Now, I think that, I mean, the last part's obviously true. And, you know, I had said that my wife doesn't mind, which is true, the word cunt at all. I think that's true on both sides, though. The fact that some people are offended by the use of a term of some kind doesn't mean that this generalizes to everybody in that particular group. And I guess it's a question of numbers, which you would like, like, and especially Yoel would like, but I mean, (laughs) right. And, and, you know, I mean, it's true. And, and I think I pointed to this, this episode with Dave Chappelle, uh, my Angela, my Angela, right? Where they they actually had you know a bona fide disagreement about the use of the N word. Where where Dave Chappelle's is like you know me and my friends, we just it, it's stripped of its power, and sh- she's somebody who actually lived through you know the fire, the, the water hoses, and beatings, and the whole civil rights movement was friends with Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. So from her perspective, it's very very different. So of course, there's going to be different. Even in our episode with Damani, he was talking about how his kids are fine with like playing music that has the N word in front of him, and he won't do it in front of his mom. And so, so yeah, I mean, that's a, it's... You know, there's certainly one defensible position is he shouldn't use it around Maya Angelou. Right. But Dave Chappelle can use it around his friends as much as he wants. Right. It gets you know? complicated when you're talking now about pu- public use of the word, right? We're, when you're talking in public, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's just all of a sudden, we, we don't, we're not built to know that our words... This happened recently with a psychologist who tweeted something out, right? We're not just equipped to know that our words can hit hundreds and thousands of years and but people have no information about the context who you are in the case of the tweet he's probably well deserved the criticism but <laughs> what you want to you want to say what that is uh, yeah so the psychologist jeffrey miller who is who, who studies evolutionary psychology which probably has something to do with the backlash he tweeted out at, now i don't have it in front of me but he said something like uh oh Obese PhD applicants, if you didn't, if you don't have the willpower to stop eating carbs, then you surely don't have the willpower to do a dissertation. And then he put hashtag truth. And <laughs> there was like something about that hashtag truth that's like just extra asshole. So there was a flurry of like people picked up on it. Jay Rosen, who's a who's a journalist, uh, picked up on it and, and tweeted it out to people. He immediately deleted it which is an extra no-no in, in the Twitter sphere, and then issued a couple of apologies, one saying that that was insulting and it was an impulsive tweet, and he apologizes, and the next one saying that that clearly doesn't... It's obvious that it doesn't represent the selection criteria for him or for his university or for any university he knows. And then, and then talk about like seeing in real time an attempt at at uh, at salvaging reputation, damage control. <laughs> yeah, it's like he knows he's just fucked, right? You know, at some point you got to know you're fucked. So, at some point you just got to cut your losses and say, "I was a total <laughs> fucking idiot. I'm sorry." Right. But his defense, get this, is through through the University of New Mexico, was that he's been tweeting offensive tweets as part of a research project to see how people respond to them. Which has got to be the worst excuse I've ever heard. Well, not necessarily the worst excuse, actually. There was another excuse, I think, that might be worse. Maybe we'll talk about that after we finish with this email. But it is a terrible excuse. It also, if that were true, then why is he apologizing? I know, and doing why would all he this? apologize? And yeah. why as a good scientist would he use like an N equals one personal Twitter account to start like It's amazing, Jeff. Jeff. You know, just just don't up to it. Okay, let's get to Sarah's uh, point number two, which which is one I think that you probably have more of a problem with. Which is, it's an interesting point, right? Which is, so she says, you never question, you never once question what the speaker would be losing if if she decided to ban the use of certain words entirely from her vocabulary. 
If the potential cost on the side of continuing to use the term is that some people will be upset that using such words might consciously or unconsciously lower that person's self-worth, confidence, capacities, relationships, etc., then what's the loss of not using these words? So in other words, she's pointing to a very straightforward cost-benefit analysis. She's saying, like, is it worth the extra chuckles that you might get for the risk that you might actually alienate, harm, or hurt, um, or add to all of the other pile of shit that these marginalized group, pe- members of marginalized groups have to go through already? And so, so I take it you maybe you should respond to this since since you don't like doing actual cost benefit calculations for any of your decisions. Well, no, I mean I think that's right. I think so. She seems very confident that there is a that that the cost benefit analysis comes down on the side of of not using these terms. And I'm not just I'm, I'm just not so sure about that. I mean I think you know again i think there is something about banishing all terms that could possibly be offensive to to certain hearers there is a cost to banishing all that there's always a cost to banishing you know what people actually want to say and the way people interact i mean that's a i, I don't think it's just a, a the a, a tiny tiny cost it's just like what i said with my dad you know when he said to the guy with Parkinson's syndrome, stand outside of my car and shake so I can park in this handicapped zone. You know, that was a way of actually kind of bringing them closer together. It was a way of just sort of, you know, not walking on eggshells. It was a way now, you know, was he a hundred percent sure that he was not going to be offended by that? No, you know, there's a co- there there would have been a cost to him not using it. There would have been a cost to, uh, you know, like a I tension, think it, it's, like a reduction of tension, like. Yeah, a reduction of tension, uh, just a way of being open. You know, anytime you have a relationship where certain things are off limits, certain things that you there's certain things you just can't say, that relationship loses something in in that. The best relationships, the best friends you have, the best marriages, the best relationships with your children, with your parents are ones where you feel like you don't have to watch uh, what you say. Yeah, but but let me let me take Sarah's side a little bit on this and say, like, let, let's reduce your argument, right? And say, you know, certainly you're not saying that, like, the fact that you can't yell cunt to your daughter's face isn't, like, har- harming your your potential relationship with her, right? <laughs> it's like, you're not like, oh, God, if only, like, I didn't have to hold back, right? So, like, it doesn't... I don't want to live in a world where I can't yell cunt <laughs> to my daughter's won. face. The terrorists have won. Um... <laughs> <laughs> and and so so is it that much of a burden to say like look all she's saying is that that some people are genuinely hurt by those words and like if you think that that reduces tension by like joking about people having having Parkinson's disease maybe there's other ways to reduce tension that won't like have this fucking shrapnel effect of like perhaps harming or hurting the feelings of somebody else right who's walking by yeah i mean and i think in her point becomes even stronger if you put it in conjunction which uh with the first point which is that we may be severely underestimating the costs to the hearer and that makes us more comfortable with whatever little gains there are for being able to use these sort of off-limit words look this is like all things this is a case-by-case basis kind of issue right right? and and i i do want to read just this one or two sentences from her because sarah actually starts bringing she brings the heat a little bit and it it gets pretty awesome she she says an able-bodied able-minded white hetero male can tell us that we just need to collectively get the fuck over ourselves and stop being so sensitive but it's a hard pill to swallow (laughs) i think she was channeling you (laughs) i think she was channeling you (laughs) 
It seems also, what's legitimate. cis? Uh, it seems equally legitimate, if not for individuals from marginalized groups, to demand that people incapable of being disadvantaged or hurt by those terms to collectively get the fuck over themselves and be a little more sensitive. Fair enough. Uh, again, I think it's a case-by-case basis kind of thing. There's a way in which, and we talked a little bit about this, like Louis C.K. using these words in his stand-up comedy is a very, very different thing than even Andrew Dice Clay. Like where you just know right. that in one, in one case, there is this, like, this recognition that these words are harmful and, and he's doing a masterful, he's using art to diffuse tension. And yeah. in, in, in the other case, you're actually just being kind of a dick. Right. right. And so, so maybe Sarah's point is like, if, if you don't know, right, if there's any, if there's any case in which it's not clear whether you're actually sounding like a dick or whether it's clear that you're, you're using this in it. I see, it's, it's not, it's not that simple because again, Louis CK, he can't be a hundred percent sure. There's certainly a chance that, I mean, we, we feel like we know that about Louis CK and what he's doing, but he can't be sure that everybody will, will, will regard him this way. Sure. If, if, if he, right. if he followed your policy, he would have to stop, you know, uh, using the language that he uses in his, I mean, now of course, stand up and comedy is also a different right, ball There's game. something sacred about the, the podium there up there. But that yeah. doesn't mean that you can't be an ass, right? <laughs> right. No, exactly. Again, I just think it's you can't come up with rules that will apply everywhere because, you know, again, go back to South Park Family Guy, you know, South Park can get away with every anything, anything, yeah. and nobody cares because people know that those guys' heart is in the right place. Family Guy can get into trouble because people aren't sure about Seth MacFarlane. Now, I actually think, like, I think I said this last time, I actually think Seth MacFarlane's heart is in the right place, but... I think that, though, there is a case in which South Park has has gone so out of their way to be equal opportunity offensive to every single possible group, you know, even even actually to the point where the chef left the show because they were making fun of Scientology. Like, they stick to their guns. And I think the problem with Seth MacFarlane is the, the very problem that Sarah points out, which it seems as if he never gets out of his perspective uh, of being sort of a white male, where the jokes are generally about, like, stereotypes right. from how we white males perceive marginalized groups and not the other way around. Last thing, she cuts us, cuts me to the quick, she says. <laughs> I see a potential clash here between two ways of thinking about ethics. A Kantian view, where what we value is autonomy, rights, and consistency of our actions. And a care ethic, where we value our relationships to others and strengthening ourselves through our communities. And what she's saying there is that, then she says, why not err on the side of sensitivity and community, even if it means we have to give up a few comedy routines and, quote, rights? It often seems like the only right that people who insist on saying cunt and nigger are in danger of losing is their right to be an asshole. Burn! Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> Let me just say right now that nothing can offend and hurt me more than calling me a Kantian, that, than saying that I might be tempted towards or embracing a Kantian ethic that values autonomy, rights, and consistency. And especially and over a care ethic, even though I don't know yet enough about ethics of care... Like I, I think that's the view that I've been gravitating towards in, in a, uh, at least the critique, the feminist critique of you know analytic philosophy and the way it approaches ethics. Uh, I think that's the view that I've been sort of moving towards without actually knowing that it was an ethics of care until it was brought to my attention. So yeah, no, that that 
that hurt, and I can only imagine that she was she was talking about you. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say you can only imagine that she was caught up in a moment of anger and sort of <laughs> sort of failed to realize her own point. <laughs> Once again, I, I think somebody so, needs to write a paper entitled "You Stupid Cunt." <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah. And, and she does say context matters. She says, cunt uttered in a sexy moment of dirty talk is very different than cunt being yelled at at a woman on the street. We need to find out people's boundaries, seek to understand their experiences, and then be kind and consensual. I mean, I think that's – there I totally disagree with that, although I've never used cunt in a moment of dirty talk, I don't think, in my life. No, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> you just use it to insult women on the street. <laughs> <laughs> No, I just, I just don't use. I, I'm a very vanilla kind of guy. <laughs> I gotta say that that's the only time I've ever used the word <laughs> "cunt" in the bedroom in the sexy moment of dirty talk. <laughs> that's like the only time that word will come out of my mouth without like extraordinary discomfort. So that's what this is. Uh, <laughs> are we? Are, is this a sexy moment of dirty talk? Since no, you've said it one, multiple this times. This is one of the moments of extreme <laughs> discomfort. <laughs> uh, uh, right. I, but you can't disagree with the, the seeking to understand people's experiences and be kind and consensual. And then she says, uh, if you want last thing, we don't want to sound like we're missing out on the criticisms, uh, but using public podiums and positions of power to defend or trivialize the use of slurs is very problematic. And I think she's referring to us there as yeah. this is a public poem. And, yeah, po- and uh, podium. May, I don't know may, if we were in a position maybe it verged on Yeah, maybe it verged on a defense of the use of the words, but I, I took our task to be, and again, maybe not well-communicated task, to be sort of more at the descriptive level of sort of outlining when, when something is offensive and when it's not. But, you know, I, I, I will take the criticism. These criticisms, I, 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 if I disagree with them, I disagree with them as a matter of degree, not as a... All of them have uh, a lot of force to them. So anyway, thank you, Sarah, Beth... For the email, it was something we thought a lot about. We wanted to devote a lot of attention to. And please, if you have problems with us, send us our send us your emails. Send us, let us know. And, and uh, can I just say, just maybe I'm risking something here, but hopefully, emails like this mean that we don't end up like your your colleague Colin McGinn. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got. Let's let's just bring up because this just happened. This just uh, happened. Right, on, it's like it's on the morning of this, and uh, we don't know the whole story or anything. So we no just idea. know the chronicle of higher education. But apparently, a graduate student there was alleging sexual harassment by Colin McGinn, and, and there are texts, including one in which he was saying that he was masturbating to her. We don't know enough, probably to. Right to talk too much about yeah, this. Yeah, we don't know. I mean, I, I I can only hope. From I mean, it sounds just like a bad situation, and uh, and Colin McGinn resigned uh, in in light of these accusations. So we don't know enough to say anything about this case. But I do have to say one thing: when you said the worst excuse ever given for misconduct, uh, I actually think this might be worse than the Jeffrey Miller one. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to quote from the uh, Chronicle of Higher Education article. Uh, Edwin Irwin, a supporter of Mr. McGinn, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of Miami, said Mr. McGinn was working on a book about human evolution and the hand. <laughs> 
part of the reason Mr. McGinn was sending messages that could be interpreted as sexually explicit, Mr. Irwin says, was probably because of communication <laughs> about that research. <laughs> that, that, is, that could be in the onion. <laughs> I, I want to break that down for a second. I emailed you to tell you that I jerked off while thinking about you because of the puzzle of natural selection. Ah, and you can see now how, you know, this was so easily confused because anybody who's working on a book about human evolution in the hand is probably going to be sending texts to grad students (laughs) saying that they're they're jerking off. You know, oh my God. That's a... uh, I shouldn't laugh at the tragedy of somebody harassing a student, but I gotta laugh at the fucking balls on somebody to offer that kind of excuse. Well, the Edward, Ir- yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the kind of defender you don't. Want. I cannot even imagine <laughs> saying that with a straight face. Done this Essentially very short. done a whole episode, but we'll take a quick break and come back with Professor Paul Bloom. I'll say welcome back to Very Bad Wizards, all right? Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> not, not really, but go ahead. You see how smoothly this whole operation runs. It's amazing runs. to watch this happen because it looks so smooth. Yeah. But behind, you know, behind the scenes. <laughs> it's just fascinating. <laughs> I, okay. 
All right, welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. And we are here, as promised, with Paul Bloom. Yeah, so let me take a second to introduce the esteemed Paul Bloom, who has graced us with his presence, despite our horrible reputation. It's sort of a personal favor, because I have some dirt on him. I think that he agreed to come on. <laughs> no, Paul, Paul is uh, a dear friend and my former advisor at, at uh, Yale University. Um, I guess my co-advisor, because we can't leave Peter Salovey out of it, since he's now president of Yale. <laughs> um, but Polly is a developmental psychologist, but kind of an honorary social psychologist who works on uh, started out working on sort of developmental psycholinguistics and, and has now worked on every other topic that is in psychology, I believe. So thank you for coming along, Paul. Thanks for having me on, David. Thank you both gentlemen for uh, allowing me to join us. I've long been fans of your podcast. And uh, I've known David forever and can tell all sorts of stories about him. But uh, it's nice to finally meet you, Tamler. Yeah, I want to hear some of those stories. They're great in stories. Fact, <laughs> they'll put it in the supplemental material so nobody actually reads it. <laughs> I think it deserves a whole extra uh, one-hour session. <laughs> this is actually the first of two interviews that I'm going to be doing with Paul because in about a week uh, I'll be interviewing Paul for the second edition of A Very Bad Wizard, the book. Uh, I was very happy that Paul agreed to to be on that and we'll be talking probably at a slightly greater length about or detail uh, about many of the issues that we talk about today i'm looking forward to that yeah so one of the one of the things that we had to get you on to talk about was this recent piece of yours uh on empathy or i guess against empathy um and and I think it was a it was a wonderfully written piece. Actually, Tamler, I didn't show you this, but I have a friend who's not an academic. Actually, Damani McDole, um, who was on the episode, who read Paul's piece and wrote this gushing email uh, that I had to forward along to Paul about how what a wonderful writer he was. And, he, he's and, a great writer, and you know yeah. what, Paul? I, I know we're kissing your ass already. You have a kind of a writing style where it's both really accessible and fun, but it's not fawning in that kind of popular science kind of book way. It's not overly trying to impress with pop culture references and over-enthusiastic or exuberant language. Great kind of relaxed style. Like Bob Frank has that style too. I, I, I love it. Guys, this is the best interview ever. I think I think we should continue on this theme for a while. Look, I, I, I will add something with the process of writing. I've published in the New Yorker, New York Times Magazine, Atlantic, some other places, and each time I've had the help of excellent editors, and the editors transform your writing. So in the New Yorker, I was helped by a Henry Finder, who's just terrific. And, you know, there, there are times where the sentences are more his than mine. So, so well, you have to so, keep that in mind. Yeah, but, although you, it's probably best to keep that under wraps. Yeah, <laughs> you should read but my, no. read my emails, and you'll see me at my purest. <laughs> <laughs> so here's my here was my theory about the empathy piece. Good writing aside, was that you went to sleep one night, and then during the night, as you were asleep, Peter Singer came in and possessed your soul, and. <laughs> You woke up, and then you started writing the Against Empathy piece. You know, it, it came as a bit of a surprise. Well, I'll ask you to just respond to your remark, because I've heard this before, and I think I might have left that impression. But my article is not a defense of a utilitarian philosophy. I'm, I'm a big fan of Peter Singer. I find a lot he says persuasive. But that's not really what my article was about. My article was an argument that empathy, in a sense of taking the perspective of others, is radically overrated as a way to reach moral and political conclusions. 
that empathy can be parochial, it could be enumerate, it could be downright cruel. And to make my argument, I don't need to say I'm going to compare it to a utilitarian worldview. For instance, there's a lot of obvious cases where empathy would lead you to care more about a lost white teenager than a thousand dying black kids. Now, you don't need to be a, a Peter Singer to say, whoa, that's a bad moral decision there. Right. No, when I said like Peter Singer, I didn't mean that because I don't think you come out as a utilitarian in that piece. But you both attack feelings, mm-hmm. and in this case, empathy, in a similar kind of way. Peter Singer is very distrustful of feelings like empathy and, you know, or even yeah. the feelings that he thinks drives deontological judgments. I think that's fair okay. enough. Um, to the extent my article has a history from my own work, it has two sources. So one of them is in my 2004 book, Descartes' Baby. I have a couple of chapters on morality. And actually, I talk about empathy and make the arguments I make in my New York article in in, in sort of an embryonic form, where I talk about the limits of empathy and the need for rationality to help us out. The second strand is actually something I've done with David, with David Pizarro, uh, which is an attack on disgust. So we've argued that disgust is an unreliable moral guide, that that it is cruel and arbitrary and so on. Now, to some extent, disgust is a soft target because all good liberals hate disgust as a moral guide. Um, But it has its conservative defenders and it has its defenders. And then it occurred to me that a lot of arguments raised against disgust could apply to some extent uh, with regard to other moral emotions such as empathy. Right. Although empathy, you know, it does have... A clear, a, appropriate tart. So there's this appropriate fit with morality in the way that at least, at least I've always thought disgust doesn't have an appropriate fit with morality. Whereas, unless you make some arguments about morality, about disgust evolving for the mm-hmm. sake of morality, which which I don't really buy, um, empathy has has a more sort of uh, sort of obvious application to to the moral domain. Um, and, so, and not just uh, connection, but foundational connection, right? I mean, you, you, you allude to this or maybe just flat out say it at times, but the whole morality game doesn't get off the track without empathy, right? In a way that's clearly not true for disgust or some of these other feelings that are often attacked, right? I mean, just caring about anybody, period, is the result of empathy, So. You know? Maybe no. So, uh, two points. Um, I'll address Hamler's point first. That we, we are pulled towards other people, and without some sort of pull, without some sort of emotion, some sort of motivation, reason itself is impotence. So David Hume is right, that right. you can't become a good person simply by being reasonable and, and rational. Um, on the other hand, it's not clear that the pull has to be that of empathy. So Jesse Prince points out there's all sorts of other moral emotions that might pull us, like outrage. Right. Or, more plausibly, compassion or love in some way that doesn't reduce to simple empathetic uh, uh, response. So it's important in this discussion to say, I'm not against moral feelings entirely. And I'm certainly not against compassion or sympathy, caring for other people. I think you need that for any sort of morality. But empathy is a more narrow thing. Empathy is a sort of more local, taking another perspective. And I'm not sure of its utility at a broad scale. Now, Dave is right that disgust and empathy have a dissimilarity. Disgust, by our analysis and by many people's analysis, is not a moral emotion at all. It's an emotion evolved to ward us away from dog poop and, 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 and dead meat and 
stuff like that. And it gets co-opted in a bad way for morality. I think empathy is, in fact, an, a biological adaptation for getting along with others. And I think it's useful. So I'm not entirely against empathy. I think it's useful for intimate relationships. I would not want a friend or a parent who was non-empathetic. Right. But So there is this other aspect of empathy, and it's actually something we talked about in a Paul, you and I and Brian, uh, Brian Bedell have a little chapter in a collected volume um, on on creativity and morality. And one of the things that we talk about and you've talked about before and I have, too, is that one of the the very weaknesses that you point out about empathy, that it requires sort of local individuals, maybe some similarity in order to, to come at you with full force can be exploited and so now you can show me a picture of one sort of neotenous looking starving African child. And it doesn't just make me care about that one child, right? That's if, right. if empathy were completely, were completely partial and if its object were only that thing that made me feel empathy, but because we have this, uh, this other ability to categorize and form groups and maybe extend ex- with reason, sort of extend our feelings toward uh, sort of take take them to their rational conclusion. Yeah. Now I can actually want to donate to to starving Africans, right? And so there's a, there's a power there to the empathy that I think. I, I think you're right, and I think that one argument against the piece, my my New Yorker piece, is that there are cases where empathy clearly led to what we would believe to be moral progress. So right. this, the textbook example here is Uncle Tom's Cabin. So right. it's a book that presumably, I, I haven't read it in entirety, presumably it's not very sophisticated or thoughtful or beautifully written, but what it does is gets you to see slavery from the perspective of slaves. It evokes an empathetic response. And the story goes that this was a huge catalyst for the abolition of slavery. Yeah. And there's a case and you where, may- where empathy leads to a positive moral change by focusing on individuals and then expanding. I mean, same-sex marriage, more recent example. I mean, with the prevalence of gay people on TV shows and movies, a a lot of people trace that general kind of natural uh, acceptance and the general natural diminishing of prejudice uh, just to that, right? Just, oh... Just right, I believe Paul, Paul actually says you use Will and Grace as an example yeah. in, in one of your chapters. I think yeah. uh, the Cosby show and Will and Grace did more to change attitudes towards blacks and gays in America than anything else. I think the situation comedy is a dominant force of moral change. So <laughs> not no. different strokes? Different strokes put back the cause of equality <laughs> to a tremendous extent. And, and don't get me started on the films of Quentin Tarantino. oh no Um, i personally lost all my racism from sanford and son yeah i know (laughs) all of these all of these shows from the 70s that we would just squirm to watch now i guess the 80s (laughs) um you know good times i love the jeffersons because he was (laughs) making good the jeffersons was good because he made fun of white people a lot yes yes (laughs) And, and and you can say you know he started off as a character in All in Family, and yeah. a lot of a, a lot of All in Family, unabashedly liberal show, was was sort of making moral arguments in part through through Rob us, Reiner, yes, getting us to laugh <laughs> at characters and getting us to empathize with characters. Yeah. So I don't doubt that empathy could be a tool that could affect positive moral change. However, F- empathy could also be a tool to affect terrible moral change. Yeah. Every genocide. So, like, what? Every genocide. Example of that. 
most genocidal movements, and I, there's countless examples from genocide and race, will start by, with an identifiable victim. Um, if I want to get a lynching going, what I will yeah. do is I will tell you about this poor white girl who was sexually assaulted by blacks. I will get you to feel her pain, the pain of her family. And I will incite within you this horrific fury. And, and, um, and this is, so that's a, a hypothetical, simple example. But I think, that's the, I think that's the American penal system writ small. I mean, I think that, that so much of, of the massive incarceration, the savage laws we have, are because we empathize with victims so much so we lose all sense of proportion. And so it's no longer matters so much to act so as to deter future crime. Future crime doesn't really bother us at a gut level. We want to pay back people for doing these terrible things to those we now care about and love. Isn't I think that- the solution is just to have more revenge for other people, more feelings of revenge across the board. it's like we should be i feel like we should be outraged at the little black girls who get who who are who are are lost right not that we shouldn't be empathic toward baby jessica I, i mean isn't what's going to reform the prison system which also i mean that might be part of it but a big part of it is these victim fairly victimless drug laws yep right these insane drug war that we're that we're having and isn't part of what's going to lead to reform just having people understand what goes on in a prison, not just hearing about it in terms of statistics, but actually seeing what it's like, feeling what it's like. You know, if this is, if this is something that's going to be reformed, you actually have to feel it. You, you need the empathy. I could, feel em- I could feel empathy to some guy falsely accused of a crime in prison, particularly if the guy looks like me. Am I going to feel empathy for real, honest-to-God felons in prison? I'd like to think so, but I think I think you're being optimistic. You won't I, if you think about it like that in the abstract. But if you see the guy, and if they if they're t- if you're talking to the guy, or you see a video of the guy, you don't think you're going to feel some empathy for him? Actually, I have the opposite intuition. I think people hear about prison rape, and they hear about overcrowding in prison, and they say, "Good." I got to side with Paul a bit on this one because this this shows the flaws of empathy. It really is difficult to get people to feel empathy for like for like you know a twenty year old like black kid from Compton who got arrested for selling weed. Like it's difficult. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying it's impossible. Like if it were the case that we could make people feel empathy for those guys, then maybe it would work. Dude, because for empathy, the way it works is you actually have to have some contact with them. You can't just hear about them. But contact you can't isn't just hear even about enough. Them with the in the abstract. That's true. So, right. so I'll give a case which supports this. I read this great article in the New Yorker by Atul Gawande about solitary confinement. And he makes a persuasive case that it's a form of horrific torture. And he describes it in great detail. And it convinced me. Yeah. It convinced yeah, me. Yeah, actually, I read Live from Death Row by Mumia Abu-Jamal. And that, that particular book does a very good job. He, he doesn't talk about his guilt or innocence at all. He just talks about, uh, about being on death row. And, and that, did, that also kind of convinced me. It's I, just that kind of empathy and perspective taking takes a lot more effort than just showing a picture of baby Jessica for, for most people. Yes. I, I, I think that the best way to evoke prison reform is not to get people to feel empathetic towards prisoners because it's just very, very difficult. We're not saints. And many of them are, in fact bad people who frighten us. So what we need to do is think more consequentialist and say, look, how should we work things that we have a better society, that we and the people we love are safer? Um, I think we could evoke some general principles of human rights and compassion, which are sort of less cold-blooded than the 
Peter Singer accounting. But I think for right. that sort of case, empathy is a non-starter. You know what I actually think is a non-starter? And Paul, Paul and I, once uh, we had uh, a discussion about this, I think it was on our trip uh, when we were in Israel for a conference, about whether or not if the moral circle is extending and now we're granting more and more rights to, to people um, whom we didn't previously, that that it, whether or not it would finally extend to animals. And I think that one reason that we'll never actually get to the point where people care so much about animals that we won't kill and eat them is because animals can't can't talk and express to express their desire for rights. I think every other group, we've gotten to the point where we hear enough of, of from them. We can talk about prisoners. We can talk about Uncle Tom's Cabin. We can talk about gay rights. We can hear their perspective and they can yell and they can shout and they can say, take care of me. Animals will never have that. No, but they have the ability to suffer, and and it's clear that they're suffering. Right. And when you see that, it's brutal. Yes. Right? I mean, if you see a dog suffering, if you see – now, it's true. Here's, Has, are here's you a vegetarian? You can say empathy misfires because you see an octopus <laughs> suffering, and that doesn't really yeah, but Tamler, mean anything to you. Tamler, you, you linked to this, this image of this – that you said this was a psychopath test. So you put on Facebook, you said, look at this video of the dog coming out of the rubble in the, in the earthquake in, in Oklahoma. And, and, and uh, the woman. You, and the and woman. The, I mean, yeah. It was, right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but – Right. So, so basically, you know, you were saying if you don't cry when you watch this, you're a psychopath. But, but answer me. Do you eat animals? Yes. Do you, have you seen them suffer? I have, although I only eat the, the happy animals. So <laughs> that that's my point. It doesn't work. Well. It just doesn't work well. No, but that's, but that's a more that's It doesn't work perfectly, position. but that doesn't mean it doesn't work. You know, like, that doesn't mean it, it doesn't, doesn't work, work at all. It doesn't work at all, dude. You, you of all people. No, I don't are, buy factory farmed no, food because of this. No, Tamler's being consistent. That's, that's working somewhat. So there's no necessarily moral argument against killing animals for food. It's their suffering. Right. That's a problem. But... David, I think I think you're, you're 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 giving the domain of empathy a bit short shrift. So, for instance, people feel empathetic towards babies who yeah. can't speak. Many people feel empathetic towards fetuses and embryos. Um, yeah, I I know. I, I think though there is a rare there is a cat- categorization there that means we. So you and I were fetuses and embryos at some point. That's right. I, that's yeah. right. So so fetus and embryos win, and babies win empathy points. Because of their, yeah. their future as... Empty. And I, I actually think that that's... That, but that's, you know, the neotenous features of, of even baby cows make it make people get way more outraged about veal than they do about, about just regular burgers, right? You know, and, right, so because they're baby cows, but that's empathy working. Now, you might say it's misfiring, but it's still empathy. That's the whole reason people get outraged about veal. Why else would they? Uh, now, of course, they're cute. They've got the big eyes. There and, and you know all of that is true, but it's silly to say that we we're incapable of feeling empathy for animals. When we I didn't say are. we're incapable of feeling empathy for animals. I'm saying we're incapable of that empathy motivating us to actual change. Like you felt empathy for animals so many times. My daughter became murdered. a vegetarian precisely because she saw like these cows being separate. I'm not saying them. that people won't. I'm not saying that nobody will. I'm saying that like the majority of people have have not only heard about the suffering of animals, but they've seen it. And shit has not really – I mean maybe there's been a, a blip in increase in vegetarianism. But by and large, the people who are most m- most well-suited to become vegetarians because of both reasoning and empathy are people like you. It, it, it's a good empirical question. There's a lot more vegetarians in America now than there used to be. And yeah. it's actually an interesting question uh, why this is so. It wouldn't surprise me if empathy had – 
is a good part of the solution. So Peter Singer's book, uh, Animal Liberation, m- m- caused many people become vegetarians, included a lot of philosophical arguments, but also, if I remember right, included pictures, or at least descriptions. Yeah. And, and, and he once said that those pictures did a lot more to jumpstart the animal rights movement than any of the utilitarian arguments that he presented. So, um, so what I'm not doubting is that empathy can be a useful tool to recruit people to a cause that on the whole is right. It can generalize. It can motivate. If I if I want to motivate gun control laws, I would cause you to empathize with the victim of an accidental shooting and her family and so on. All I'm saying, though, is a tool which is blunt. It goes in all sorts of ways. If I want you to get vote against gun control laws, I'll do what people have done, actually, and I'll trot out victims of crimes who were defenseless against savage criminals because they didn't have a gun. That'll right. That'll work, too. Right. But so isn't aren't all emotions though blunt tools, right? I mean, fear is a blunt tool. It's often very helpful, but uh, off, but it also often misfires. Disgust, not just morally speaking, but just disgust about food. Dave's disgust meter misfires all the time. It stops him from being able to enjoy lots of really good the, food. The, the, the death of animals. Uh, <laughs> oysters. You, you oysters. Can't, you can't eat oysters, uh, somebody, David? No, I don't. I don't. No. I mean, so in my case, I was raised vegetarian, and so the, yeah. disgust, the disgust is strong with me. So it's sort of a non-category of... The other day, I got to say, though, I ate, I was out with a friend of mine, and uh, I ordered these uh, fried tofu things, yeah. and she ordered these fried pork things, and I, I w- mistook the pork and the tofu for the tofu, and I had a piece of the pork, and I got to say, it didn't taste that different. Maybe it was a like slightly different after. Oh, my God. Your years and as I, a vegetarian have destroyed your taste buds and large <laughs> chunks of your brain. Uh, uh, so I guess my point, Paul, is that as, a, as a, bl- a blunt instrument doesn't mean we have to be against it. It just means it, it's not perfectly tuned to solve every moral problem. Or, but why bash it? I bash it because some people fetishize it. So I bash it because Obama, who's a, a reasonably reflective person, champions empathy in, in more than any other president, talking about the ability to take the perspective of others. Uh, liberals, who are just the political group I most associate with, um, talk about empathy all the time. Conservatives lack empathy. Republicans lack empathy. And we've got to have empathy. And whenever there's a political cause they want to advance, they speak out in favor of empathy. I think empathy has a utility. I think it, it could be a moral spark that gets things going. I think it's necessary for intimate relationships. I think it's necessary for the law. Because, and this was a part taken away from my article for space reasons, but there's good reasons to believe that a lot of legal decisions, such as what counts as harassment or so on, you need to take the perspective of another. But for global policy decisions, it's terrible. And unfortunately, many people don't understand that. Many people think that the way to figure out how America should allocate money is by who appeals to our heart the most. And the way to deal with the justice system is let our empathy towards victims sing out. It's a well, also our empathy towards the offenders. I mean, the, the champ, some champions of empathy really do focus on that, like Martha Nussbaum, for example, thinks that that is an important part of justice is to feel empathy both for the victim but also, importantly, for the offender. But you just don't think that'll happen. I don't think that'll happen. I think there may be some, some moral superhumans who have empathetic powers that they could have empathy for anybody. They're not. It's, their empathy isn't racist. Their empathy isn't. <laughs> They're like empathy whores. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I've been calling them empathy superheroes. That says a lot about Dave. They're actually Dave, empathy sluts. I admire them both. They're, they're empathy sluts in that they're, 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 their empathy extends <laughs> to anybody promiscuously in the strongest right. sense. But even they, I think we could agree. You don't have to be uh, Bentham to agree that the lives of 100 people matter more than the lives of 10 people. And right. a million matter more than a thousand. Empathy can't right. get you there. But, yeah. but, but nobody is saying person. that even the empathy fetishizers aren't saying that empathy can solve every moral problem or you derive all moral conclusions just by using your empathy, right? The fact that you care about anybody dying in an earthquake in a remote country is likely the result of empathy. And then, yeah, of course, it doesn't it, so, double or triple based on how, you know, the empathy isn't calibrated to increase based on, you know, the, the numbers. So let me but, take a stab at, at defending something that Paul's saying here, which is um, imagine now you have you're just policymakers, right, who have to allocate aid. Gov- U.S. government says, like, we, we have a billion dollars that we want to give toward humanitarian aid. Um, and so you, on the one hand, you have a spreadsheet that ranks sort of number of people starving and mm-hmm. dead and suffering. On the other hand, you have somebody who is just t- sort of taking a look at, at the causes individually and, and sort of be, being moved by some versus the other. I kind of want the spreadsheet guy. I kind of want someone who's, who's on the spectrum allocating the money. So, right? so, so do right. I. And yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate this is a point which Tamler raised before, and I think is right, which is I don't want a psychopath doing it because psychopath won't no. put together the spreadsheet in the first place. Right, won't even right, bother. Right. I agree with that. You have to have some degree of fellow feeling, whether it's empathy or compassion. You, 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 you need that. Um, I mean, an example I sometimes give is somebody might be empathetic and decide to set up a scholarship program for inner city kids. That's terrific. On the other right. hand, if they then decide who to give the money to, based on empathy, they'll give it to the attractive kids and the kids who look like them. That's bad. They should set it in yeah. place and then have an objective procedure. There's a temptation, Tamler, in the way you're talking, and a lot of people think this. It says, empathy brings us just a bit of the way. Then you need more. But there's right. a lot of cases where empathy pulls us back. So one example is foreign aid. What, what um, Linda Pullman describes a lot of foreign aid being not merely incomplete or uh, particular, but actually horrifically damaging. So a very moving case study she talks about is a case where, um, where guerrillas, and I think this is in Sierra Leone, they get a lot of money when aid workers come in because they enact a tax from them. So what they right. started to do was chop off the limbs of children because the aid worker, it looked like the aid workers weren't going to come back. They set up some atrocities. They know Americans love atrocities. More aid workers come in, and basically you have a commercial relationship with them. Mm-hmm. And I think we could agree that that's bad. And, and that's, that's the case bad, for empathy. Yeah. Empathy. I agree. Oh, good. You start small. Empathy. <laughs> empathy in that case isn't pushing you towards the good just partway. It's actually leading you to a moral mistake. I, I kind of feel like that's more the issue of these gorillas than it is a problem with empathy, though. It's somebody exploiting in the same way, you know, terrorists can exploit our fear and make us all scared shitless. That's fear misfiring. But it's not fear's fault. Right. It's not you you wouldn't want to blame fear for that. You blame people who are capitalizing on the necessary crudeness. That's true. But this emotion. But there are there are plenty of there are plenty of people who argue that fear misfires all the time. Right. And so there's even disorders of anxiety. Yeah. Nobody nobody goes and talks about disorders of empathy. Look, I I agree with the description. And in some way, there's not a disagreement with the point of with analogy to fear. Um, 
it's true that in some way you shouldn't blame empathy because it's the bad people's fault who are exploiting empathy. But then just turn it around. Say empathy is easily exploited, as is fear. Empathy is going to guide us to care more about the white kid than the black kid if we're white. It's going to guide us to care more about the person in our neighborhood more than the person uh, in a faraway land. It's going to make us care more about a kid with a disease than a kid who won't get a disease if he's vaccinated. For instance, vaccination from a point of view, vaccinating kids is, is from an empathetic point of view, not really that salient because there's no victim. You're trying to stop a victim from occurring. Sick kids, sick kids evoke our empathetic response. So there's all cases where empathy, I think, is sort of intrinsically biased in a way that's morally irresponsible. So then what is, how do you define what, because you say that a lot, that empathy takes us one way, morality takes us in the mm-hmm. other way. What, how do you conceive of, what is morality to you? Yeah. Um, uh, I, two sentences or less. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't, I, I don't at, at my stage of thinking, have a sort of off-the-shelf philosophical answers. I'm not going to say it's utilitarianism, it's deontological, it's virtue ethics, something like that. Here's how I make my argument. I think there are cases where, as reasonable, reflective beings, everybody agrees what's right and what's wrong. I want to argue that empathy falls short, even in those cases. So I can see somebody saying, look, I say, I can imagine some case where I say empathy leads us to do the wrong thing here. And somebody reasonably says, no, that's the right thing. But I think there are examples. My Sierra Leone example is a case where if you agree with me on the facts, nobody's philosophical view says, oh, well, we are still right to help. Nobody's philosophical view says, I think, that a a black kid is worth less than a white kid. To be be fair, it gets complicated. So it's my empathy, in part, that causes me to care so much more about my my child than about your child. And I'm not actually sure that that's mistaken. I'm not sure that that, that, that's more. And so those are hard cases. I will admit that those are hard cases. So that's where the Peter Singer Uh inside you has uh, been exercised, because he does think that's a mistake. Yeah, I, and and those are very hard problems because we, we allocate some of our resources and time towards those we love much more than those that uh, we don't know. And I think we probably give too much towards those we love. We don't give enough charity, for instance. But I don't know what the right amount is, and I don't even know how I could know. You guys would notice. Who was the, the philosopher who said, ought implies can? Kant. So, you know... I think there are some moral, th- some things we cannot do. We cannot retain our humanity and care the same about a stranger than about our own child. And so any moral prescription shouldn't tell us to do so. I agree. But I don't see that. As, I, I've never seen any kind of good defense for the view that morality has to be that impartial or anywhere near that impartial. I, I, I agree but, with you. And I think there's actually even consequentialist defenses of that partiality which is the world works better for everybody if everybody first takes care of their own. But I'm curious what you two guys think. My sense is that, it's in, that the partiality is not limitless. If I, if I let somebody drown, if I pass a lake and there's a drowning child, and I hurry on because my son, I promised my son I'd play Xbox with him, and I don't yeah. want to be late, that's monstrous. Right. <laughs> so now where do we draw the line? What if I'm rushing yeah. to give my, my son an eye transplant that will save his sight? And I, th- I, yeah. I, I have no idea how, how one answers that question. I, I think we would agree that some partiality is acceptable. Some is too extreme. And figuring out what's right seems to be the hardest problem in moral psychology and moral philosophy. 
Yeah, and I think that there's an error that people make when whenever you mount these arguments that where they think that in order to say that uh, that we're we're being too partial or that empathy is misfiring or that we're not de- dedicating our resources to the right sort of charitable cause that they then want you to figure out what the right balance is before accepting your argument right. and that doesn't seem right right so I think that that right now if you told me if there were the equivalent of like a hedge fund for charities where some geeks were were calculating sort of the neediest most suffering people in, on on planet Earth. And I could contribute X amount of money, like dollars per month. I think that I would choose that one, right? Yeah. I would let them manage it, and I would say good. And I would, you know, decide a hundred bucks, two hundred bucks, whatever a month. And it doesn't seem right to attack me by saying you could give a thousand. That's right. As a as a way to defeat my That's that right. argument. And a lot of people, there's this weird ad hominem attack that's often raised against Peter Singer himself. <laughs> yeah, where, they always where, students always ask me, well, what uh, is Peter Singer yeah, fucking doing? Yeah, where, where you know, oh, Mr. Big Shot, <laughs> fifty we, times right. as much as your parents will do in their entire exactly. life. <laughs> exactly. Shut the fuck up. Exactly. So they see him wearing nice shoes and they say, ah, oh, screw that. Yeah. I, don't, I don't have to be nice to anybody now. You've undermined your whole <laughs> argument. It's just, it's just it's just bizarre. It's a form of moral. David, what would you call it? There must be psych- social psychologists. There must be some theory. It's a rational. It, it, the, the rationalization, rationalization capacities of, of college students, they are <laughs> maximized. They are at their optimal level whenever you talk about a Peter Singer well, article. Yeah, well, so people often ask me I, – I remember getting to this, this point in one of my seminars where, where the, the kids finally accepted the, the sort of reasonableness, the rationality of the Singer view and – and what they couldn't deal with was the guilt. And so, so the guilt of having a, a monthly cable bill where you could be saving an African kid. So they said, you know, so if you believe this, how do you deal with the guilt? And so I said, alcohol and painkillers is a pretty good job. <laughs> I mean, if it's if it's your guilt that you're dealing with, then deal with the guilt and save some yeah. more people than any, <laughs> any moral person in in our perspective and from our walk of life. Any moral person should be constantly ashamed. <laughs> That's right. That's why that Louis C.K. bit is brilliant. We'll, we'll we'll put that one. My life is really evil. Like I, there are people who are starving in the world, and I drive an infinity. That's really evil. There are people who just starve to death. That's all they ever did. There's people who are like born and they go, oh, I'm hungry, and then they just die. And that's all they ever got to do. And meanwhile, I'm in my car, boom, 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 like having a great time, and I sleep like a baby. It's totally my fault, because I could, I could trade my Infinity for like a really good car, like a nice Ford Focus with no miles on it, and I'd get back like $20,000. And I could save hundreds of people from dying of starvation with that money, and every day I don't do it. Every day I make them die with my car. <laughs> Louis C.K. must have had some sort of training in analytic philosophy at some point. I, yeah. Either that or he's just rediscovering first principles like on his own. He's that if, if you could find a clip, there's another one with him talking about passing a homeless person, which is extremely <laughs> funny. Yeah, I've seen that, right, where, where his, with his uh, out-of-town yes. sister let's, to help him. Let's and, help him. And they were saying, like, no, 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 don't, you don't do that. You don't do that. And I was like, I'm <laughs> correcting her for being, like, <laughs> yes. a good human yeah. being. <laughs> That's actually a moral a moral dilemma that I encounter on a daily basis, which is what do you do when you walk by somebody um, who clearly who's clearly homeless? And so, what is the 
Do you I spit st- on them I st- or, no, or do I st- you tell them to get a job? Is that, is well, that the dilemma you're facing? But why, no, why is my first thought? My first thought is, well, if I give it to this person, then what's to stop me from giving it to every single person on the street? And then I, I can't really maintain that, right? No. I'm essentially <laughs> arguing with myself the way my students argue with me. Right. <laughs> I, I would pay not to walk by Paul you and I talked about yes. maybe doing studies on this but I would pay not to walk by homeless people and be made to have that moral dilemma well that's essentially people moving out to the suburbs they pay <laughs> to not be around misery right I find I, I had this horrible interaction a couple of weeks ago it was in there was a train derailment between uh, uh, near New Haven I think between New mm. York and New Haven and I had to get to New York to Philadelphia, actually. So we took a ca- shared a cab, found myself in New York Penn Station waiting for the next Amtrak out around 11 at night and eating a slice of pizza with a friend of mine on the phone. And this guy comes up and asks me for money. And I say, no, I'm busy. And then he keeps standing there. And it was a bit of intimidation. And he said, I'll use it to buy pizza. So I say, <laughs> okay, fine. And I'm on the phone. So I, I reach in my pocket. I pull out the first bill, which was a five. I pass him the five. He doesn't thank me. He just takes it and walks right out. <laughs> and, and I felt rage slash humiliation slash shame and general moral confusion. So now yeah. I'm just going to have limo services take me everywhere. That's going to hurt a lot of future people who ask you for money, yes. like that guy did. I should have told him that. I should have. Yeah. It's true. You're, you're not, you didn't do the proper game theoretic calculations, my friend. Yeah. Also... I particularly like beggars who, if you say no, say thank you or God bless you as you walk past. Because they're doing yeah, the opposite. Yeah. They're helping future beggars. <laughs> David knows this, but I have two sons. And my younger son is very empathetic kid. Very sweet kid. Right. My older son is not. He's not very empathetic. Um, mm-hmm. So when the Newtown Massacre happened, my younger son, he, we went to a memorial service and he wept. And he had a little mm-hmm. bracelet. My older son said, you know, look. You know, the American government kills many more people like this with drones every day. <laughs> they went to school. They knew the risks. <laughs> <laughs> Chickens come home to roost, baby. <laughs> there is a way in which uh, my ideal, you know, we talked, Tamler and I have talked about this before, but the, the ideal sort of public face of, of you know, p- whatever policy decision making has to be calculating and pretend to be empathic, just like you were saying. Yes. So you, you got to say, like, they got to do the spreadsheet, yeah. arrive at the answer, and then show the world how human they are, right? And, and, and the worst face is uh, empathetic that pretends to be calculating. That's <laughs> Exactly. That's a horrible, like, baby Jessica really, no, really, like, yeah. needed that. <laughs> yeah. I had heard, I haven't tracked this down, but somebody sent me an email saying a bunch of, a bunch of, senators and congressmen are putting together a bill to divert yet more money to Newtown. Oh my God. Who would vote against that? Yeah. Was I know, you know, so let's make this the richest little town in the world. <laughs> you know, we'll you know, that. after every bombing, the red cross gets more blood than they know what to do with for the nine 11 thing. They said, you know, we have too much. We want to give it to other people. And people were furious. They want their blood to go to heroes and right. not, not to regular. Oh. heroes. <laughs> Oh my god. So, so you, you gotta agree. Empathy's going a little bit astray there. 
I, yeah. I, I agree. I, 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 yeah, no, I don't think that empathy is something that doesn't ever go astray. Yeah. I, I think that it's something. I maybe the, it's a small disagreement. I don't think it's fetishized quite as much as maybe you do. And then also, I don't. I don't. I also think people do need a bit of an infusion of empathy, especially today's youth. I think you're right. I mean, this developmental psychologist Martin Hoffman says. Parents, good parents do these things with their kid all the time where they say, yeah. take his perspective. Can't you see? How would you feel if somebody did that to you? Right. right. And, and, and I think that's an, an exercise of, of, of empathy. And yeah, I don't want to be surrounded by psychopaths. Right. I, I don't think psychopaths yeah. make good friends, good, good family, good lovers. They, they make good one-time lovers. <laughs> the psychopath in bed. That's a great title. All right, let's talk about your book. So you're writing a book called Moral Babies, right? No. Or it's, it's, uh, it's called Just Babies. Just Babies. So there's a bit of a play on words there. Uh, uh, yeah. I think for the rest of my life, I'm going to say Just Babies in an ad, and there's a bit of a play on words there. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so I'm getting used to it. And it's coming out. In you should add that maybe like a subtitle to the book. Yeah, the, the first chapter yeah. explains the title. Um, it's uh, it's coming out in November, and you, it's already on Amazon. I just looked. We'll put a link up yeah. to for pre-order. And the question on, people uh, are going to wonder is: Should they pre-order it, or should they buy it when it's released, which has this effect? And the answer is both. <laughs> but if they pre-order it, then you'll that'll help for when it's first released. Yeah. So pre-ordering is a good idea. Yeah, I saw an advanced copy of it. I've read the first part of it, looked through the rest. It looks great. Oh, thank I mean, you. I think it's going to be a big hit. Oh. I think I think you're going to be rich because of this. You're going to be able to have that vacation house and send a little money rich, to Darfur. Richer, I, richer. Yeah, um. I, 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 I would use it in, in a kind but not empathetic way. <laughs> well, calculating. I, I would I help. Do, I would help the unlovely people who don't get any other. <laughs> well, I I do have to point out that your choice of cover of having two white babies was quite interesting, and uh, that's all I'm going to say. So, <laughs> well, and, well David, uh, think of neither the, of them. Think of the alternatives. How's that going to go? <laughs> so, so, so tell us about the book. What is the study of babies? And their behavior, and, and specifically their behavior in moral situations, telling us about morality itself. Well, I'll start off by saying, you know, I, I'm going to have plenty of chances to talk about the book when it comes out and prior interviews and everything. This is really early in the process. You two are the first people I've ever spoken to about the book. So this is kind of oh, exciting for me. Awesome. Like so, we got a scoop. So it's a scoop, yeah. exactly. And this is not going to be polished. But here's my answer. Um, the book makes two arguments about what babies tell us about adult morality. One is a lot of morality is inborn, is hardwired. We're born with it. And so what I do is I discuss baby research, some of it done at Yale with my, my wife, Karen Wynn, some done in other labs across the world, that show that babies have this remarkable moral sense. They are they have capable of empathy, of uh, moral outrage, of, of judging good and evil. Uh, they have an appetite for punishment, for reward. There's a powerful moral system built in early on. The second thing I argue is that this is limited and that a lot of what we view as sort of emblematic of adult morality, including the idea of impartiality, that some moral rule should apply across the board, that we should have a broad moral circle, does not come natural to us. It's a product of culture and learning. Do you think, Paul, so maybe we should clarify what babies are for those who aren't developmental psychologists. We're talking here very, very early, right? You're talking infancy. How early do you think these basics emerge? 
We have research finding some rudimentary capacities to tell good guys from bad guys emerge as young as three months of age. Um, These are great studies with Kylie. So this is work. The first author is Kylie Hamlin, who's now a a professor at University of British Columbia. And all of this work is done in collaboration with Karen Wynn, who's my my colleague and my spouse at Yale. Um, Younger than... Paul was the spousal hire. Can you describe that, (laughs) uh, those those experiments? Yeah. um, So the typical experiments we do involve, we show babies a, a puppet show. So say in one puppet show, a character is going up a hill. Another character pushes it up and helps it, and then a second character pushes it down. It may be in another puppet show, baby, a, a puppet is playing with a ball. One character passes it back, another runs away with it. A puppet's trying to open a box. One character helps the box open, another slams it shut. So you show babies puppet shows like this, and then in some of our experiments, we give babies a choice. Which character do you prefer? Which one do you want to interact with? And we find that the youngest babies that we test with this method um, will prefer the good guy over the bad guy. Hmm. For older babies, we could do other work. We could see who do they prefer to reward or punish. I love these studies where you where you tell them that the bad guy likes broccoli, and the kids will right. So <laughs> the kids will eat broccoli just so the bad guy doesn't get a chance to eat it. So this, so there's there's <laughs> like there's work that uh, Karen Wynn has done independent of me involving uh, kids' responses to in-group, out-groups. And uh, babies actually uh, show a strong preference for individuals who are nice to somebody from their in-group, but also for individuals that are cruel to somebody from their out-group. And in-group and out-group could be characterized as simple as having the same taste as the baby, the same preferences as the baby. So they're really, in in some way, babies have an extraordinary moral sense, but in, in other ways, they're really nasty little bastards. (laughs) <laughs> so what's an example of like the nasty a nasty baby a typical nasty typical baby. nasty baby i don't think babies give a damn about strangers there, there's no evidence that that babies care at all about somebody they aren't in regular interaction with babies also babies and young children also um show immediately form groups favoring their own group over others so there's some great work done by katie kinsler where babies get to choose who to interact with and early on, they choose to interact with somebody who speaks their language over another language. They don't like interacting with individuals who have an accent. Especially German accents, I think. <laughs> it's actually French accents. Well, that just shows good sense. In, you're, you're just hoping nobody's listening this far deep into our discussion. But, but in, in their study, it, it was French accents, actually. Uh, Take it away. Uh, again. Take it away. Yeah. That's good. Um, there, there's a nice study, actually. Five-year-old kids in America prefer... White, if they're white, they prefer white kids over black kids. You give them two individuals and mm-hmm. say, who do you want to play with? They'll play with the white person. But Kinsler and her colleagues did a study. You have the white person, uh, the, the black person speak English, and the white person speak English with a faint French accent to go with the black person. <laughs> so so there, there's some reason to believe, and I, I, I explore this in my book, that racism per se is not innate. So there's actually no evidence saying that kids glom onto color or race and however you characterize as critically important. They seem to focus on other things early on, like language. And then race becomes sort of a proxy for in-group, out-group somewhat later on in development. So the in-group, out-group is basic, and that just manifests itself in all sorts of different ways depending on the culture? It does. It does. So some, so some cultures won't emphasize race at all. Others will emphasize it from the get-go. 
and, and, and so to some extent, the origin of racial bias or ethnic bias is in some way a perfect case study of the interplay between our natural proclivities and environmental forces. So, you know, one thing I like about about uh, your book is that the, just in the title, The Origins of Good and Evil, I mean, there's been so many arguments that we're all sort of essentially good or, or that we're all just nasty psychopaths. Yeah. And and you're pointing out this this proto-morality goes both ways, that, that, that all of that nasty and the good is there from very early on. I, I, um, yeah. I think it, sometimes if, people ask... But if you have to ahead. take a... Sh- if people ask me the question, are babies naturally good or evil? I think the answer is yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you think that the, the sort of... That this baby morality is kind of like the the what Duvall calls proto-morality in, in, in non-human primates? Is Is it sort of... Is it the same stuff, or are babies already more sophisticated than, than, than our primate cousins? That's a great question, and I don't know the answer. There's no. all this study, there's a rich body of research on the morality in chimpanzees and gibbons and orangutans and non-human primates, some of it using the same methods that I use with Karen Wynn and Kylie Hamlin. And um, the results are unclear. So Franz de Waal would say, yes, Franz de Waal would say, I think that a chimp has the same moral powers as a baby. Other scientists, like my colleague Lori Santos, would say probably not. And I think the jury is really still out. Because now we're just talking about babies, though, right? The, That's right. A- adults are. Right, because right, right. Duval does say that you know, they lack the capacity to take that uh, you know, impartial okay. perspective. That's yeah. right. I, I want to ask you about Adam Smith and the role that he plays in the book, and I know that's a huge question. I am a huge Adam Smith. Uh, in the last in the last three minutes, yeah. In the Tell last us. three minutes, can you say because you know he's a he's a philosopher that I've become fascinated by recently as well. So, what is the what is the connection with Adam Smith in the book? Why did he inspire so much of the? The, uh, of, of so many of the ideas there. Um, I, I read while I was in, in Edinburgh over the summer his book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, his first book, the book he thought was his great book. He thought Wealth yeah. of Nations was second best. I, re- I read it and I was transfixed. I think Adam Smith is one of the smartest commentators ever on issues like uh, empathy, sympathy, punishment, justice, and the relationship between morality and uh, uh, reason, morality and emotions, and so on. One way to see Just Babies is in some way introducing, seeing sort of what Adam Smith had to say about our contemporary science. I think Adam Smith, for instance, is much better than David Hume. David Hume is just a big self-promoter. But, but yeah, no, you, <laughs> oh, no he, you go to Edinburgh, David Hume has a huge statue devoted to him. And even when they were both alive, Hume this and Hume that. But Smith is just this work of genius. And so, so <laughs> well, I, I, we'll have to talk we'll have more to talk about more that. About you know, this. we have to have Paul back on. I want to talk about this. Re- we didn't talk enough about reason and the role of reason and morality versus the role of emotion we alluded to. We didn't talk about social psychology at all. Yeah, we didn't talk about social psychology. Have me back. Okay. Well, thank you we so much for your time, Paul. Thank you, guys. Bye. <laughs> Thanks, Bye-bye. Paul. Bye. Bye-bye. For more information about this episode, including show notes and links, and to listen to other episodes, please visit us at www.verybadwizards.com.
Very bad wizard.